So here we are then. Good morning, afternoon, evening, whatever time of day it is, wherever you live. Whether you're on the way to work, in a coffee shop, you know, socially distanced, of course, or just doing some housework. Welcome to episode two of that Racing History podcast with me, Aidan Millward. Hope you're all having a good day. The uh, temperatures are starting to go up here, so no doubt there's going to be a few barbecues being lit up this Easter weekend, and, you know, we might as well all enjoy it while it lasts. I'm actually tempted to crack open a beer, but it's Oh, three in the afternoon at the minute, so I'll just uh, stick with coffee. I'm also a bit bunged up. It's hay fever season, so my day is not going too well. But before we get into things, I'm just going to put some ideas out because the show is still new and I'd like some feedback from listeners. So I'm thinking of opening up the floor to questions in future episodes. So if there's something you'd like the answer to, whether it's something from a previous episode you'd like clarifying or it's just a question that can't be answered in a 20-minute or so podcast, let me know in the YouTube comments. Uh, because these episodes go up on YouTube first and Spotify a couple of days later. And also stay tuned to the YouTube community tab as well, where I'll be putting up polls for later episodes so you get to choose what comes next, because you've got to get that audience engagement going and all of that. So to avoid wasting a minute and a half of your time, I'm going to get straight into it. Today, I've got something that even now is still a little bit of a sore spot for F1 fans who have a, uh, let's be honest, unhealthy obsession with things being in the past. You know, those bygone years where everything seemed to be better an era that the statistics show wasn't actually any better or worse or at least from a competitive outlook than what we have today today it's a dive into how formula one quit its smoking addiction so cigarettes and formula one well just cigarettes and motorsport as a whole that used to combine like cheese on toast formula one cars rally cars indy cars touring cars in britain germany and australia All covered in tobacco logos and sponsorship in general was dominated by the names of tobacco companies. From title sponsorship of cars to naming rights of whole series of motorsport, there was probably a tobacco logo somewhere on the grid. You know, whole cars painted to look like the cigarette packets. It was a very colourful time. And like a lot of things in Formula 1, the credit goes to a certain Colin Chapman. In the January of 1968, the popular New Zealand Tasman series was hosting its third round. The first two rounds at Pukekohe and Levin were won by Kiwi Chris Amon, and the third round was to be hosted at Wigram as the Lady Wigram Trophy. And all the cars arrived in their national colours, so you obviously had red for Ferrari. You know, the McLarens turned up in orange for New Zealand, green and yellow for the Australians, so Jack Brabham and co, and, of course, red and gold for Britain. Hang on a minute. That... No, 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 no. Britain's... Britain... Britain's green. Britain's green? What... Okay, I can't act. But basically, what had happened was Chapman had had himself a brainwave and had been working behind the scenes to try and make some more cash to help develop his cars further, as with any motorsport, costs only ever increase until you have some sort of reset button that slashes said costs, only for them to increase again. By Chapman's reckoning, the running costs for a Formula 1 team for a whole season had hit the £90,000 mark, which in 2020 is just over £1.5 million. So Chapman decided that to help pay some of the bills, he would sell sections of his car to companies to advertise on. If you wanted to advertise on the car, you paid a certain amount of money, and you got a spot on the car relative to how much you paid. Essentially, what Chapman had done was start the world's first Patreon account, and his cars became 170 mile an hour billboards. Imperial Tobacco had paid Chapman around £100,000 just for the 1968 season, and in return, the cars were painted to advertise their gold leaf brand. The team's budget was then paid for, leaving the prize money to go to drivers like Graham Hill and Jim Clark. 
The track officials told Chapman to jog on, but when Chapman was able to convince them that the crowds were only there to see Jim Clark, and as far as they were concerned, no Clark, no party, the organisers relented. The cars took to the track, and Jim won the race. Typical 60s stuff. But unfortunately, Clark would be killed at Hockenheim, and the Lotus that won in New Zealand and won the Tasman Series overall returned to Brands Hatch for the non-championship race of champions. Now Chapman was once again collared. Not by the Royal Automobile Club, the RAC, the organisers, but by ITV, which was at the time the UK's only commercial television channel next to the publicly owned BBC. Yeah, back in 1968 we only had three channels. BBC One, BBC Two and ITV. Now we have BBC One, BBC Two, ITV, Channel 4, Channel 5, Channel 4 Plus 1, Channel 5 HD, ITV HD, 5 USA, E4, ITV 2, ITV 4, and this is no joke, we have a TV channel called Dave. So if you like 24-7 repeats of Top Gear and panel shows, then Dave is the channel for you. Obviously, other television channels are available. But ITV actually had a point. Their broadcast was paid for by the companies that were paying to have their adverts shown in the ad breaks, because that's how ITV's funding comes. But the BBC is funded through the government as well as the public by way of a TV license, which actually isn't a license, it's more like a tax, but that's a complicated issue for another time. But getting back to the point, Chapman hadn't paid ITV to run his corporate livery, and ITV claimed that Chapman was advertising for free and ITV was essentially being cheated of some of the money that Imperial Tobacco had paid Chapman to advertise Gold Leaf. So put simply, Imperial had paid Chapman to advertise, not ITV. And this is only a guess, but I think that Imperial Tobacco paid Chapman more than any of the other companies had individually paid ITV for the privilege of advertising on their channel. But there was also another issue, and this was something that Chapman couldn't dodge no matter how hard he tried and how much star power he had in that car with Graham Hill. Tobacco advertising on television in the UK had been banned in 1965. ITV and the race organisers warned Chapman that unless he covered over the Goldleaf tobacco logos, he wouldn't be allowed to race. And this time, unlike in New Zealand, it was Chapman that relented and his mechanics put gaffer tape over all of the logos. Which made little difference because back then it was all black and white and the quality was so poor you probably wouldn't have seen it on those screens anyway. But the events of Wigram and Brands Hatch served as genesis in terms of the funding for racing teams the world over. And I think my dad was actually at that race, you know. He definitely went to see some Formula 1 in person around that time. Lotus then appeared on the grid of the South African Grand Prix with gold leaf colours on the cars with the FIA's official written consent. Then in 1970, Yardley, which is the perfumery brand of British-American tobacco, bought advertising space on the BRM cars in a deal worth around 50000 which is about three quarters of a million pounds today. And seeing how much money could be brought in by sponsors and not having to rely purely on prize money to develop cars and pay star drivers, the other teams soon followed, and the colours of the cars were no longer decided by country racing colours, but by whoever the biggest bidder was for advertising. If a company was paying the colour would be whatever colour that company wanted it to be. Hence, Pink Force Indias. And while Jackie Stewart, Graham Hill and others were the first to race with these new injections of company money, Nicky Lauda was really the first to enjoy the massive amounts of money a racing driver could have made at the time. 
He was already on a £160,000 retainer by Ferrari, and sponsors increased that retainer by another £380,000. A massive amount of money back then. And tobacco money was so powerful, the cigarette companies could heavily influence which drivers appeared at which teams, and even the Royal Automobile Club sold its soul to the devil, selling the naming rights of the British Grand Prix to John Player. But the one company that had more influence than any other in motorsport was, without a doubt, Philip Morris. Marlborough In the early 1970s, Marlborough sponsored BRM for two years in a deal worth more than £100,000, plus bonuses and marketing. They flew 100 journalists on an all-expenses-paid chartered Air France jet to Paul Ricard to see the new car, and it all worked so well that it was front-page news in virtually all of the motoring magazines at the time. Then by the 1980s, tobacco companies had a grip on the Formula 1 and motor racing world, and at the same time, an anti-smoking lobby was beginning to show itself. And like I've already mentioned, the UK had banned tobacco advertising as early as 1965. The French later banned it as well, which is a little bit ironic considering they smoke more than any other nation in Europe as far as I'm aware. And as EU countries started to get tough on the advertising into the 1990s, the companies and the F1 teams found creative ways to get around these rules, mainly resorting to subliminal advertising. Now you may have seen the Marlborough barcode, the Rothmans question mark to dodge British subliminal advertising rules in 1997, Micah and David on the sides of the McLarens, and as a bonus fact, when you get the official Formula 1 games of the time, you'll find that the cars are usually painted in the liveries they ran at either the French or British Grand Prix, the two nations where the rules regarding tobacco advertising were the toughest. If they ran the full liveries, the game would be age-restricted to 18+. And what video game company is going to want to do that? Also in the UK, there was another small flaw in the laws, not because of the tobacco, but because of who was broadcasting the races. Now in the UK, as opposed to the US, product placement isn't really a thing. In fact, it wasn't a thing because it was law. It was banned. Product placement was flat out banned to keep all advertising to ad breaks and to prevent companies slipping some advertising money to the program's producers in return for preferential treatment towards a particular brand. That ban was lifted in 2011, the first piece of product placement being a coffee machine in an episode of Coronation Street. But viewers need to be informed. To the point where in soaps such as Emmerdale, Coronation Street and even Britain's Got Talent, there is an icon, a, a PP icon, on the screen warning viewers that some companies have paid to have their products on display in the pub, in the corner shop, on the judges' tables and so on. I mean, that's on ITV and Channel 4, but over on the BBC, there are no adverts. It's end of programme A, link, beginning of programme B. Simple. No ad breaks. It's why I love the BBC. It's all public and government-funded broadcasting. It's almost like a glorified YouTube red. 10 o'clock news, straight into match of the day. Love it. Now, people who live in the UK and watch the Beeb will be familiar with the phrase other supermarkets are available or words to that effect when a brand name is mentioned. It's all part of the BBC's impartiality rules, to the point where on Blue Peter, a popular children's TV show, they will say Sticky Back Plastic instead of Fablon, which is the main brand name. You'll find on many kids' TV shows, or just TV shows in general, they will say Sticky Tape, because they can't say Sellotape, because that's the brand name. And, you know, Snap, Crackle and Pop look like they're in some sort of witness protection program, because can't tell anybody that that's a box of Rice Krispies. I have a Shark Hoover 
well, it's not a Hoover, it's a Shark vacuum cleaner because Hoover is the brand name of a... I think you can see where I'm coming from. You'll say the main brand name, even though it's quite clearly something else. I'll have a Coke. Well, I haven't got Coke. I've got Pepsi in the fridge. Yeah, brand association, I think they call it. You can't say plasticine on Blue Peter. You have to say modeling clay. And if you're an American and you're listening to this, you might be thinking that I'm a bit weird because you're so used to your KFC Zynga replays or your Verizon chopper cams. But here, this is totally normal. So with all that in mind, imagine 26 racing cars flying around a racetrack with all of these company names on them. The BBC's directors must have exploded. But you could have argued that there were so many different brands of tobacco, petrol, tyres, spark plugs and so on on show that it wouldn't have mattered. There was impartiality there. Everybody's been represented. I mean, that's how I see it anyway. By the 1997 season, virtually all of the teams, with possibly the exception of Stewart, had some interaction somewhere with a tobacco company. Whether that was actual sponsoring of the car, like Mild 7 or whoever, or just sponsoring one of the drivers. Damon Hill wasn't sponsored by a tobacco company. Pedro Diniz was. Adding to that, McLaren had their title sponsorship with West, Ferrari with Marlborough, Jordan had Benson and Hedges, Prost was with Goulois, or however the hell that's pronounced, Benetton was with Mild 7, obviously that's just the title sponsors. The tobacco companies had such a grip on the sport, they were able to use their virtually bottomless pits of cash to pay for entire careers. And Marlborough had a successful program bringing many drivers through the system, such as Mika Hakkinen and Eddie Irvine, while Mild 7 backed the Japanese pay drivers of the time. And thinking about it, pretty much all of the South American and Italian drivers who came through in the 80s and 90s were backed by Marlborough, either for their entire career or at some point. And I'm sure there is somebody in the comments section on the YouTube version of this video going on about the morality of smoking until the cows come home and how these companies make their cash. But what can't be disputed here is that bottomless pit of money helped teams pay drivers to race rather than drivers paying to race. Although that still happened then and it's still happening now. That's right, pay drivers aren't a new thing. There is no way Eddie Jordan would have been able to afford Damon Hill in 1998 without that Benson and Hedges money. Teams could afford the fastest guy they could get their hands on. The tobacco companies cared about winning. They didn't care who it was that won, they just wanted their logos on the podium and on television. So what they could do was chuck money at a team to get the best drivers, or make a problem with a car go away. When Eddie Jordan said to Benson and Hedges, I want to hire Damon Hill, Benson and Hedges would have gone, how much do you need? Here's a blank check. Do what you want. Teams would get the fastest guy they could get their hands on who was out of contract and just try and get him on the podium. And I keep using Eddie Jordan here because Jordan is probably the best example of a midfield team being able to use tobacco money to get drivers who were fast enough and get podiums. Guys like Damon Hill, Heinz Alfredson and Giancarlo Fisichella. It meant that the underdog could have their day. We all know that Jordan in 1999 could have won the Constructors' title. Maybe not the Constructors' title, but certainly the Drivers' title with Heinz Howard Frentzen. Tobacco money, ironically, kept the grid healthy, even if the cash to pay for them came off the back of addiction and death. But that's not to say that the drivers with the backing were not all terrible. You know, the Andrea Monterminis and Luca Badoas of the world. Another problem arose in the 1990s when the British government at the time, the 
Tony Blair-led Labour government, wanted to stop showing Formula One on television because of the tobacco companies advertising on British television, saying that it was against the rules even though it was being broadcast in another country. As an example, while it was illegal to show the logos in the UK, France, Belgium and Germany, nobody else had banned them yet, so when the Japanese Grand Prix was being shown, the law was technically being broken. And Bernie managed to do a deal. And I used the term deal in rather large inverted commas that kept Formula One on the air. It was a £1 million donation to the Labour Party that they refunded, but Bernie had also spotted a massive double standard that the BBC and ITV had, as well as the British government. And that double standard is called snooker. And one of the most popular sports in the UK on television is snooker. It's a bit like pool, but it takes a bit more skill. There's more balls on the table that are worth points. You don't just clear your stripy balls or your spotty balls. You score points through break buildings by potting a red and then a colour and so on. And the tables are much bigger. They're 12 foot by 6 foot instead of being about, what, 6 by 3. And at that time, the snooker was on the BBC. Well, it still is on the BBC. But the snooker was sponsored by tobacco companies. Specifically, Embassy and Benson and & Hedges and were referred to as the Embassy World Snooker Championship, the Benson and Hedges Masters, and so on. The Premier League, the top football league in England, was sponsored by Carling, the lager company. So there was alcohol advertising at 5 o'clock on the BBC. And Tim Gudgeon would even start his reading of the classified football results with the FA Carling Premiership. Aston Villa, nil, Chelsea, 2. Birmingham City 1, Newcastle United 0, Manchester United 2, Liverpool 4, and so on. And Australia was probably the first country outside of Europe to ban advertising, which they did in 1995. But Bernie and race organisers found a loophole in the law that allowed high-profile sports events such as the Australian Grand Prix, the Bathurst 1000 and the CART IndyCar visits that happened on the Gold Coast to continue using tobacco sponsorship. By 2000, that loophole was shut. But I'm fairly certain that Formula 1 was still allowed to carry on showing Baki logos. Spain, Italy and the rest of the European Union followed suit in banning tobacco advertising on Formula 1 cars. And Frank Williams was the first to see this coming. In 2000, he ended his long-running deal with the Rothmans Tobacco Company and went for a cleaner image, getting tech companies and nicotine on his cars, because it was the year 2000, you know, the tech boom, Y2K, all of that good stuff. You know, the end of the world that never happened. And then in 2005, the European Union banned tobacco advertising outright, despite most of the countries having already banned it in some way anyway. At least the ones hosting Formula One Grand Prix had already banned it. And actually, tobacco laws in Belgium caused the cancellation of the Belgian Grand Prix in 2002 because there was a massive fight over whether or not Formula One cars would be allowed to show their logos and things. In 2007, the only races allowing Ferrari, who were still the only team still openly sponsored by a tobacco company, were Monaco, China and Bahrain. Those are the only countries that you'll see the full Marlborough branding on those cars. And I'm also fairly certain that those are the only countries where Ferrari can continue running that Mission Winnow branding, you know, that green screen thing that they've got on their car this year. And since they couldn't really advertise anymore, whether it was overtly through having the four logos or covertly through using subliminal advertising, the tobacco companies all ran away from Formula One, except Marlborough, who continues to sponsor Ferrari to this day. 
Without an alternative, F1 teams have to rely on drivers such as Nikita Mazepin, Lance Stroll, Esteban Gutierrez, Rio Harianto, and Sergio Perez, despite now being at Red Bull, is backed by Carlos Slim and most of his companies. Since most of them crashed a lot, Eddie Jordan would not have hired them. Meanwhile, the talented drivers are having to rely on the junior programs to progress, but it's still not a guarantee of reaching Formula 1. You know, Esteban Ocon, George Russell, Pascal Wehrlein, and those sorts of drivers. Which isn't healthy for the sport in the same way that cheap cider and 20 Super Kings a day isn't healthy for you, but F1 has always had these pay drivers. It's just that now the money is coming from Dad or from some oil baron in Russia as opposed to cigarettes. It hurts the image of the sport, which in turn hurts viewing figures and so on and so forth, but you can't really blame Williams and Sauber for taking on drivers like Sergei Sorokin, Marcus Ericsson and those kinds of drivers, because no pay drivers, no team. With the economic recession in 2008, teams are having to find money from anywhere. Sponsorship budgets had actually increased between 2005 and 2006. It was the economic recession of 2008 that pretty much killed all of that. And it's not longing for the good old days to come back and to have the Rothmans, Williams, or the Marlboro McLarens, or the Mild 7 Benettons. It's more about having a stable product. Yes, the grid is closer today than it was in the 1990s, but imagine if the teams had the tobacco money still, or a similar alternative source of unlimited cash today. Whether that's from you know gambling companies or something like that, you know, what kind of product would we have? So this has been the story, the uh, motorsport history, the full, yeah, let's just call it the full story. Let's let's keep it with that on how F1 gave up smoking. Thanks for watching or listening, uh, however you're consuming this show. And if you are consuming this via YouTube, please remember to like and subscribe to get the algorithm to do its thing and help build this up and push it to you know, the rest of the world. As always, this goes up on YouTube first because that's where all my audience is and will then go on Spotify a couple of days later. That Racing History Podcast is a Patreon-backed show, and if you wish to help support this podcast or just my YouTube channel in general at a more personal level, then you can do so by heading to the Patreon page at patreon.com slash Aidan Millward. That's A-I-D-A-N-M-I-L-L-W-A-R-D. So Aidan with an A and not an E. And you can also follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and all that good stuff. And there is also a Discord where you can join in the chat there. For YouTube listeners, all that stuff is handily in the description box for you. So until next time, I've been Aidan Mild with That Racing History Podcast. Have a great day wherever you are, and goodbye.